Welcome to another episode of the Metal Embassy Podcast, the official podcast for DCHeavyMetal.com. I'm your host, Metal Chris. May is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. So for this episode, we're going to go back to the late 80s and talk to someone that was instrumental in the formation of the heavy metal scene in China. So I usually try to keep my podcast to about half an hour in length, give or take a little. But when I was talking to Kaiser Ko for the interview for this episode, we could talk forever. That left me with a really long interview. So for this episode only, or maybe I'll do it again in the future, there's going to be two versions of the episode. One with the full interview, and the interview alone is about 40 minutes long on that one. And then there's going to be this version you're listening to here, which is the shorter one where I cut about 12 minutes or so out to make the interview about 28 minutes long. Now, I'm going to play a song at the end of the interview, and I've got this intro as well, so it's going to be a little long anyway, but I know some people don't like the longer episodes, so I try to keep them short, but if you want to hear the full detailed interview with Kaiser, you can get that by going to either dcheavymetal.com and looking for this episode's post there, or you can go to metalembassy.bandcamp.com and find the episode there as well. Both places you can stream it for free. All right. Now, I'm always trying to do something new and different on the Metal Embassy podcast, and this week I've got a guest that I'm very, very proud and excited to have on the show. Kaiser Ko is one of the founding members of Tong Dynasty, who are considered the first heavy metal band in China. I have actually interviewed Kaiser before on a podcast, except that was not on my podcast. That was on The Bridge with John St. Augustine, and that went live on November 2nd of 2020. I had a little trouble with that interview as I was working with two other hosts and the format is a bit different, but now I've got Kaiser here on my home turf and I think things are going to go pretty smooth. These days, Kaiser is a writer and editor on SupChina.com and he's the co-host of the Seneca podcast, which discusses current affairs in China. So thanks a lot for being on the show here with me. And thanks for having me, Chris. Of course. <laughs> I would like to start off by asking... So you are American-born, but you ended up in Beijing, China in the late 80s. And can you tell me how exactly you met the other members of what would become Tong Dynasty and how the band formed in those early days? Yeah, I, I got to do a little bit of a prequel. So like you said, I was born in the States and you know, I grew up just a kind of standard learning piano and violin and all that stuff. But uh, by the time I was in college, I was deeply into Prague. I'd played a lot of metal earlier, but I was really into, you know, your Yes and Genesis, King Crimson and stuff like that. And I was a huge Rush head. Actually, Rush was like the thing that changed my life. When I got to college, they put me in a dorm room with a guy who had picked the same three favorite bands, basically. That's why they matched us. It was pretty brilliant, you know, at UC Berkeley. They had us fill out this roommate card where you had to say whether you were like a neat freak or a slob or whether you were a morning person or evening person, smoker, not smoker. But then the great question was, who are your three favorite bands or artists? And I think we both put down like, yes, Led Zeppelin and Rush. And so we got paired. It turns out he's a kick-ass drummer, you know, double bass set and everything. We immediately started a band. And then a couple of years later, we got invited to go to China to play. It was a band, all of Cal Berkeley students. So we were pretty, you know, clean cut and we seemed like nice kids. Or so China wanted to, to bring us over, but that fell through. And I was fucking 
pissed. I was angry in particular at one bandmate who I kind of blamed for messing up my plans. So I had this master plan. I was going to go to China as soon as I graduated, and I'm going to find those guys who are playing music over there. Because I knew I was looking at the backline list. You know, they had like Marshall stacks and stuff. Somebody over there was playing rock. They wouldn't have it if they were just playing orchestral music. So when I got there in 88, I basically made a beeline for the first music store that I heard of. Some Russian friends told me and this other American guy about this music store. And we headed down there and were immediately introduced to a whole nest of musicians. The guy that I met first would end up being the front man for Tang Dynasty. And he was like a true metalhead. I don't know how he became one because there was so little there. I mean, he had heard a lot of Deep Purple. He'd heard some Iron Maiden. He'd heard like Judas Priest and then a lot of hard rock stuff. But man, he was a metalhead, and we immediately bonded and formed the nucleus of Tang Dynasty. So you were saying you didn't know exactly how they'd gotten into metal, but it sounds like a lot of what they were into was kind of like the early, you know, Black Sabbath and Deep Purple and, and Zeppelin and that kind of stuff. So did you introduce them to more of like the Judas Priest and the new wave oh, of yeah, British yeah. heavy metal stuff going on at the time? Exactly. So I had grown up listening to the same stuff. I mean, Priest and Maiden, and then a lot of the Nwabam bands, Tigers of Pantang and Saxon and stuff like that. I mean, it wasn't what I loved. I loved, you know, Priest and Maiden. Um, those were like my two metal bands and Sabbath. Yeah. So I made sure they knew it all. I was introducing them to stuff constantly. You know, they had never heard UFO. I guess they had some Aussie stuff, but I just made sure to fill out the catalog because I had a pretty good-sized collection of tapes and CDs when I went over and spent a lot of time just kind of dubbing stuff, just taping stuff and copying labels, writing out song lists and important stuff from liner notes. So yeah, I was definitely kind of playing missionary over there for a lot of metal music, but Rush was the big one. So you were something of a salesman. Yeah. (laughs) You were only with... Tong Dynasty for about a year at the very start there, and you basically left and then came back in about 96, I think, and stayed with them for several years, and that included recording their second album, which translates to Epic, I believe. How did you end up rejoining the band, and, and how did that hiatus happen? The first hiatus was, you know, we started the band in late 88, early 89, and then 89, in June, of course, there was the Tiananmen protests that culminated in the, in the massacre of June 4th, so I had to hightail it out of there. The guy I told you about, the roommate from college, he had actually come out and he was playing drums. And we had actually gone out on tour on the morning of June 3rd, about 16 hours before the gunfire. So we didn't even know about the massacre until June 7th. We were out in this really remote area, kind of near the then Soviet border in the way north of the country. And we found out about it. And then we had to figure out a way to get out of China. The embassy and the consulate were telling us, you know, hey, you're going to be first up against the wall. They were pretty scared for us. (laughs) I didn't know what to think. You know, I would have stayed, but everyone wanted us to leave. So we got out of there. And it was terrible because I completely lost touch with them. But I went back two years later and immediately went to where they lived. The bass player at the time, his place is where everyone hung out. Early one morning, I showed up, just knocked on his door. And he was just like, oh, my God. And in the meantime, they had gotten signed with this label out of Taiwan, and they were getting ready to record demos for the album. And I realized they didn't have their shit together, really. They had, you know, not enough songs. And so we really quickly, I kind of, you know, rejoined and worked on the demos. And I actually found a recording of the first demos that we did. It's got a lot of the early versions of the songs on the first album with me playing on it. It was pretty cool. 
And so that summer, the plan was that I was going to record with them and everything, but I was already in grad school at that point. And so the clock was ticking. We were trying to book studio time and it just couldn't happen. And so I ended up just in the last few days teaching all my guitar parts to do one to the other guitar player just to make sure that they could actually put them down. I'm pretty disappointed with how some of them turned out, but then I had to skedaddle. I just had to go back. I'd already paid and I had an apartment and everything. And so I had to get back to graduate school and came back again the next summer. By then the album was out or it was about to be out. It was like just on the verge of release. And then we toured that whole summer around the release of the record, went and shot videos for it, all that stuff. That was pretty cool. So it wasn't like I was completely away, but at the end of 92, I started getting warned away from China. People in the public security bureau were like calling and saying, look, you don't know this yet. Some of your friends are getting into hard drugs. And if you know what's best for you, you should probably stay away from this scene, blah, blah, blah. And so it kind of freaked me out. And as it turns out, they were actually correct. There were some people who shall not go named who were starting to, they were just smoking heroin at the time, but it got worse. So I, uh, I left for a while. They had like this great moment of glory in 93, 94, 95. But in the spring of 95, our bass player was killed in a motorcycle accident and the band basically fell apart. Even though they replaced the bass player, the guy who had replaced me on lead guitar, it was this, this shredder, this really amazing guitar player. But, you know, he had a, an ego that was kind of commensurately, you know, high. And uh, he and Dingwu just couldn't get along. So Dingwu kicked him out of the band and asked me to come back. So... It was hard not to, because, you know, I had to come back and get him cleaned up. He had been dating my sister at the time, and my sister was pleading with me to come back and save him and save the band. So I just dropped graduate school. I just finished my master's, and I was starting my PhD program. And I just said, well, I guess I got to go back to China. And I ended up staying for 20 years. <laughs> that's great. I didn't know you were there for that amount of time afterward. That's, that's great. Yeah. But, you know, so only three of it was with Tang Dynasty from 96 to 99, and then in 99, I left the band again. Yeah, so tell me about those three years, because it sounds like the band was one of the biggest in China at that time. Well, I I think it wasn't. I mean, it was like a comeback, right? Because they had peaked in 95, right before Zhang Zhu's death. That's when they were really huge, when like everyone was listening to their stuff. But then, you know, they'd gone years without a new album. And so they had definitely cooled. People still knew who they were, but... And that second album that we put out was way different than people were expecting. There was nothing pop on it at all. It was very proggy. It was a lot of noodly stuff, really long songs. And yeah, I mean, it didn't sell nearly as well. And also, it was just mastered so terribly. It was so quiet. The only way I can listen to that record is I have to, like, copy it into Audacity and then, like, give it, like, a... 12 decibel boost or, or actually, you know, set a, a soft limiter across the whole thing and boost it so it finally sounds decent. But I hate the way the guitars sound. The drums and the bass sound great, but I think Dingwu, I mean, he still wasn't in great shape and the singing isn't great. So I love the songs, but I feel like that album really disappointed me. So what was it like to tour China in the mid-90s when you guys played live? What kind of venues were you playing or were you playing festivals or what? There weren't a ton of festivals back then. Festivals as a phenomenon only really began in the 2000s, like, you know, 2001, 2002. But back then, we played everything from little bars, you know, that would get totally packed, totally a fire hazard, but to stadiums, like soccer stadiums. I think the biggest place I ever played was like 35,000. It was nuts. You know, and often we would headline, but we weren't the only act. If you had held a gun to our head at that point, we could have maybe played a two-hour set, and that would have about been 
it. That would have sort of maxed out everything that we could play that was presentable. I doubt Gar Singer would have had the stamina to do the whole two hours. So it's not like we could have done a solo anchored just us playing. So often it was like six bands playing at some stadium and it would be like a festival, but each band would only play five or six songs. It was kind of stupid. That reminds me of like the Live Aid setup or something. You exactly. Know? Yeah. It was all like that. Yeah, yeah. Because that's sort of what people were looking at. That's what producers would see. They'd see, oh yeah, Monsters of Rock or Live Aid or something like that. And there'd be a bunch of pretty well-known bands and each of them would only play like a 45-minute set. All right, so I'd like to talk about the name Tang Dynasty a little. For people that don't know, the Tang Dynasty lasted in China for about 300 years, from about 618 AD to about 907 AD. And there's a brief period, I think, for about 15 years where it was interrupted. But the Tang Dynasty is considered something of a golden age for China. I know the expanded territory, I believe, a lot during that time, but also the realms of art and literature is looked back on as a high point, much like I think the West kind of looks at ancient Greece and Rome. Yeah, for sure. That's a good analogy. And I can't believe you know so much about this. This is amazing. Were you like... (laughs) Well, I like to do a lot of research before I do my interviews. So, <laughs> what you said was exactly right. You got the dates right, 618 and 907, with that little interruption during Empress Wu, who actually had her own dynasty. But the Tang, as you said, was like this golden age in Chinese arts and literature, and especially in poetry. But the reason that it was great, I mean, the reason that most people recognize that it became so great was because it was super open to foreign influences, super open to the outside world. So that's when a foreign religion, Buddhism, really took root in China. That's when foreign styles and art were embraced, where foreign foods, foreign music, all this stuff. And so when we named the band, when I came up with that name, it was because China was also in a period of opening up. And the secret message buried in that was, if we want to be great again, let's be open to influences from around the world. And as a guy who was trying to kind of smuggle a genre of music that was totally alien to China into China, that was kind of a good packaging for it, right? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Do you think it may have not gone over so well had it been named, you know, something just maybe a more generic name, you know, like Wings of Fire or just something, you know? Exactly. (laughs) It wouldn't have gone over so well, yeah. Although Wings of Fire, that was about what most of the other bands were called. They had super cheesy names, you know? (laughs) Yeah. For sure. It had to have that kind of message. And the other thing that it touched on, I guess Wings of Fire would also kind of do. But you know how like in Western metal, there's so many bands that are named after like Tolkien, but but also, you know, all that medieval stuff. You have like the Man of War guys all bulked up with swords on the cover, you know, all that stuff, right? A lot of that Conan the Barbarian medieval barbarism and swords and sorcery and shit like that. There is a perfect analog to that. All the kids who would like metal, the boys who were kind of like got a little too much testosterone going on, what they liked in lieu of that, they had their own Chinese martial tradition, the martial arts novels, these great stories about strategists and generals and heroic warriors and warrior poet types and all that stuff. That was something else that the name Tang Dynasty could evoke. So we wanted to sound kind of like those stories come to life. In some sense, like we wanted our songs to evoke horse-borne warfare on the steplands and battle chariots and banners and crows pecking out dead dudes' eyes and stuff like that, right? I think we went for that effect and it worked pretty well. Even visually, hang those sword tassels off your guitar and do your hair kind of like ancient warrior style. (laughs) 
I think one of the things you guys really did too is you did incorporate certain traditional Chinese elements into the music as well. So it wasn't just a Chinese band playing heavy metal. It was a band that had Chinese elements and also heavy metal elements and were making a sound like that that fit with, I think, a lot of that imagery. But what I don't know, because I was not in China at that time, were other bands also doing that? Or was that sort of your thing and other bands had their own thing? What was that early Chinese metal scene like? So there were some that kind of tried, or they draw different elements of Chinese culture and incorporate that. But we kind of had a monopoly on that kind of wuxia or kind of martial arts novel kind of thing. So nobody else really tried to do that right away. But there were others that were great that drew on even Chinese comedic traditions. There was this band called Ziyue. Their name was Confucius Says. And they were kind of like Primus. You know, they were a trio with like a crazy talented bass player. And they were funny. They used this kind of Chinese comedy tradition. It was dripping in irony and really kind of sarcastic and deeply funny. So you know, there were other bands that drew on other elements of Chinese culture for sure. But that became kind of my shtick, right? That's like what I like to do. Because I think I was the one who figured out, you know what? Here's what you do. There's certain intervals that are common in Chinese music, you know, fourths and fifths. There are certain tunings that I can use and certain pentatonic patterns that are, because that's where rock, you know, with its pentatonic basics and Chinese music, which is fully pentatonic, where that intersects, right? And I was like kind of getting inspired by movie theme music from martial arts epics, those gigantic war epics. If you listen to the soundtrack music on these China-themed video games, it's kind of the same. You know, you got the war horns and the deep drums, the kind of galloping Iron Maiden kind of thing. You know, and it all fits in. So I started putting that stuff together, and I think it worked pretty well. So what impact do you think the Bantong Dynasty had on China culturally at that time? Or even now still? Everyone says that it was like, I mean, I think it's true that it launched metal in China for sure. There isn't anyone who is involved in metal in China today that wasn't influenced by them. But it never went fully mainstream. Metal never became really mainstream in China, unfortunately. It's still kind of niche. I mean, there's a great scene in China, a really lively metal scene. And there's, you know, hundreds of bands, maybe even a thousand bands playing metal. And yeah, I mean, for sure, I'm proud that Tang Dynasty definitely had a role early on in that. And it did go on to inspire other bands to find something recognizably Chinese and making that a part of the music. But I think a lot of them kind of failed to make it sound organic. A lot of them, it just sounds tacked on or sort of shoehorned on. It's like a dumb looking appendage that's like, hey, look at me, I'm Chinese, instead of actually starting with the Chinese elements and then making them metal. I think one of the cool things about the metal scene, though, in China was how they didn't really understand the metal subculture in other parts of the world necessarily in the early days. And so they didn't know about genre conventions. And I'm glad they didn't, because then they could sort of import something and plant it in this alien soil and it would bloom in weird and cool ways, right? If they had known, okay, we are a melodic death metal band, therefore we can only do this, 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 and this. No, that wouldn't have worked out. So you basically formed Spring and Autumn shortly after leaving Tong Dynasty. Now, when you left Tong Dynasty, were you planning on starting a new band right away? Or is it something just kind of happened? What's the story behind Actually, the formation there? 
Yeah, so I actually decided not to do another band. I mean, I was like, I'm not going to do it. So I finished up with Tong Dynasty 99 and then went to work for an internet company. And we were venture funded. We had some money. And so one thing that we did a lot was we threw these events where I'd get to pick what bands would play. And so there was this one band that used to open for Tong Dynasty all the time. And I got to be really good friends with them. It's funny because my wife was the drummer of that band's girlfriend back then. So I got something out of it. (laughs) But uh, I used to like help them out. And so I was informally producing them. I was helping them out with some of their songs and stuff. And I was pretty sure I didn't want to do another band. I got a full-time job now. I got to focus on that. But then there's this kid that I met when Tong Dynasty was touring in like 98 or something, right before we released Epic. And I met this guy in Kunming in the province of Yunnan. And he was this kind of small guy with a great voice, you know, really, really clarion voice, and was playing in a band called The Seventh Day. And he had like folk metal sensibilities. He was playing a kind of music that was exactly what I wanted to do. And I said, you know, one of these days we'll work together, right? So a couple of years later, he's moved to Beijing. I had no idea he brought the band up there. And right after they arrived, they basically broke up. And then part of them went on to form AK-47, which is a pretty good kind of new metal, groove metal kind of band. And then he started approaching me. He would come over to my house all the time to try to convince me to start a band with him. And I'm like, I'm out. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And then he would come over and he'd say, hey, well, just listen to these songs. And he'd play a couple of things that he was working on. And I'm like, I'm tempted, man. I'm tempted. But this is like, I I can't. And then finally, he brings over this other guitar player. This is the guy who would work so well with you. Just listen to him play. And we started talking about tone. We started talking about effects and guitars and stuff. And it's Ko Jung Yu, this guy who's from Suffocated. And I finally was like, "Uh, all right, okay. But here's the deal. I have a full-time job. I mean, I'm working like 60 hours a week, so I'm not going to flyer. I'm not going to go negotiate shows. Anytime we have rehearsal, I will be there early and I'll stay late. I won't miss any shows, but you can't count on me to make our website or do any of that stuff. You've got to do all that stuff. And they agreed. And of course, immediately I get completely sucked in because I love those guys. I'm in love playing with that band so much. No fucking egos. Everyone just got along. I enjoyed it so much, but we all had other stuff. And so we weren't able to be as productive as we probably should have been. And the other thing is like, this is always what happens is these bands, we have like seven or eight songs that we can do really well and everyone likes. They're all good songs. And then suddenly every week you've got another gig somewhere. And that means that when you rehearse, you're basically just rehearsing for that gig and you stop writing, you stop writing new stuff. Yeah, and plus I'd stopped smoking pot. <laughs> that destroyed my creativity. No, no, I'm just joking. One thing I want to talk about, this is a little more serious here, is, you know, on March 16th, there was that, I don't even want to name him, that guy that uh, killed eight women in Atlanta, six yeah. of whom were Asian, oh, during a shooting spree. It was near Atlanta. I don't think it was in Atlanta. Then on the 29th of March, there was that Filipino woman that was seen being viciously beaten in New York City as well. That made headlines too. Yeah, the doorman who closed the door. Uh, it was just unbelievable, yeah. Obviously, it's pretty hard to ignore at this point that there seems to be a rise in... Anti-Asian hate, yeah. Yeah, and uh, in Pacific Islanders. And in America especially, you know, I know a lot of people are kind of blaming this on some of the rhetoric, especially started by Trump with the Chinese virus, calling the COVID that over and over. I honestly think there's been anti-Asian American sentiment in America going back to at least, you know, the 1800s with the Chinese Exclusion Act and the early immigration laws were all to prevent Chinese people from coming here, not 
South Americans and Central Americans. So do you think this is something that's really drastically on the rise, or do you think it's something we're just seeing more now because we have more cameras and more ways to record things? And do you think there's something we can do to try to turn the tide on some of this? Yeah, so for sure, Trump's rhetoric had something to do with it. And this is not just a function of us having more cameras and being able to see more of it. This is palpable. I've lost count of the number of people who have experienced it personally. Everything from, you know, being called by racial epithets to actually being physically attacked. It's really pretty horrible. It's tempting, I think, for a lot of people in the U.S. to just say, well, this is all Trump. This is all his senior officials in his administration. And yeah, the uptick seems to have happened almost as soon as Trump started using the language, you know, blaming the COVID-19 pandemic on China from the presidential podium. It certainly had something to do with it. But you're absolutely right. It has much deeper roots. It goes back to the first Chinese immigrants and Asian immigrants from in the United States in the early 1800s, not even 1882 was the Chinese Exclusion Act. I don't know if you remember, there was this company called O'Donnell and Associates that put out this GOP playbook. They called it the Coronavirus Big Book. And it was intended for Senate Republicans for their talking points on the coronavirus. And it basically said, blame China. You got to just blame China. And when they say that's racist, we say, no, it's not racist because Spanish flu, you know, we call that. And that it had all these talking points for deflecting the charge that it's racist. But it came down to, well, if you're saying it's racist, you're just carrying water for the Chinese Communist Party. You're repeating their talking point. But what underlies this, of course, is fucking xenophobia. It's this irrational hatred or fear of China that's been on the rise for a long time. And part of that is just because a lot of Americans just at a deep, you know, sort of psychocultural level, they can't handle the idea that there is a multidimensional near peer competitor, that there's this country that is not just an economic challenger like Japan was in the 80s, not just a military strategic challenger like Russia was during most of the Cold War, but both, right? And um, it's kind of destroyed the load-bearing walls of American exceptionalism in a lot of ways. You're not supposed to be able to be capitalist without being democratic, right? But China's kind of done that. You're not supposed to have innovation unless you have a free you know, flow of information. You can't have innovation in an atmosphere of internet censorship. But China somehow seems to have done that. Technology was supposed to take down these authoritarian governments. And now China seems to have harnessed technology to buttress its own authoritarian power. So it offends a lot of American sensibilities. And so a lot of Americans are really primed to hate China. And that's really deeply unfortunate. I looked at last summer when this full court press from the Trump administration was going on, where they really pulled out all the stops. They sicked every American department and agency on China, Commerce and the Justice Department. And, you know, of course, the Pentagon and all the intelligence agencies, everyone was like, China bad, China bad. And it was happening at the same time as the George Floyd protests, as the BLM protests were sweeping the nation. And I saw a parallel between them. They're both in a lot of ways is sort of a reaction to the loss of American primacy and white primacy inside America, but American primacy in the world. When you have that privilege suddenly yanked away from you, the reaction is lashing out in coate violence. And that's kind of what white America is doing to black America when it finally stood up and wanted justice and equality for itself. Now it feels like it's doing the same. Now, China hasn't helped the situation because China does all sorts of really bad shit too. But I think Chinese people can understandably see how that stuff gets weaponized. There is terrible repression of the Uyghur minority in China. I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that this rises to the level I at least would call an atrocity. But China sees this as like, how convenient. 
Trump gave the green light for this. You've written about it in your own books. In three separate occasions, at least, Trump said, yeah, those Muslims should be put in camps. And suddenly you turn on us when it's convenient for you. Suddenly we're committing a fucking war crime or a genocide when you guys were all about that in the first place. How convenient that you've killed 1.7 million Muslims in your war on terror. We've imprisoned a whole bunch, maybe a million or more, but nobody's dying. They're not killing people. And they think there's a difference. I don't think that's any excuse, but you have to see it from China's perspective. It looks rankly hypocritical for the United States. But nobody is beating up Chinese or Japanese or Korean people or Vietnamese people out of fucking solidarity with the Uyghurs. They're not doing it because they're worried about Hong Kong or Taiwan. They're doing it because mostly of this portrayal of Chinese as carriers of disease, of you know, vectors for the virus. They're doing it because they're trying to paint the Chinese as all spies for the Chinese Communist Party. It's a different thing. It's a really deep problem. It's about education. And there's a lot of structural impediments to it. You know, It's the way that foreign correspondence is done. And there's nothing wrong with it except that it doesn't produce the outcomes that we ideally like. If my ideas of some foreign country, Iran or Russia or India or China, were formed only from the newspaper articles that I read in the New York Times, the Washington Post, you know, naturally I'd have a pretty negative opinion of it because they're not going to write about the ordinary stuff. They're going to write about the extraordinary stuff. They're going to write about the corrupt officials rather than the kind of benign ones. They're going to write about the bridges that collapse and not the ones that don't collapse, right? Unfortunately, that's sort of built into the way that we look at the rest of the world. Yeah, the thing that's always just kind of amazing to me is like if America views other countries and the people of those countries by the actions of their government, like what do they think other countries are viewing us when we're sending drones <laughs> everywhere and you know, bombs yeah, to yeah. the Saudis so they can bomb Yemen. And, and it just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, you have to understand that people that live somewhere might not approve of what their government's doing as well. And I think that's well, a message that doesn't get taught. This is why what you're doing with this podcast is important. This is why, you know, what can we actually do? Well, we can actually build people-to-people bridges. It's like what you're doing. You're reaching out and you're talking to musicians who live in these other countries in a common language, the language of heavy metal. I think that's the kind of thing that produces actual connections, right? So, man, hats off to you, man. (laughs) Well, seriously, Chris, uh, I think it's awesome. Well, thanks, Kaiser. Now, something I always like to do on the Metal Embassy podcast is I like to give the person I'm talking to an album from somebody from my area here in D.C. Oh, awesome, man. So I know you're really into prog stuff, and there's a really cool local prog band called Iris Divine. Oh, nice. I like the name. I've been a fan of theirs for some time, but they put out an album in 2017 called The Static and the Noise, and it's on Bandcamp, and when we get off of here, I will gift that to you. I'll send that your way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Well, that's the end of the interview. However, we always play a song after the interview on the Metal Embassy. So, for this episode, we're going to be playing a song from Kaiser's second band, Spring and Autumn, and this one's called The Huntsman. I really like this song because it sounds like heavy metal, but it also sounds distinctly Chinese.
编织着爸爸的香烟，你已摊开我脚下。Metal Embassy is brought to you by me, Metal Chris, and DCHeavyMetal.com. I personally record, edit, and produce each episode for your listening pleasure. The Metal Embassy theme and credit music was written, recorded, and produced by Stefan Elie. The Metal Embassy logo was made by the Lord of the Logos, Christoph Spazgel. If you have questions, comments, criticism, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email me at dcheavymetal at gmail.com. This episode was recorded in Adobe Audition, and I used an ElectroVoice RE320 microphone. I recorded the interview with Kaiser Co. on April 13th of 2021 via Google Meet. The song The Huntsman by Spring and Autumn is used with permission. Thanks for sticking around until the end of the show. On the next episode, I talk with a band from El Salvador that has an inspiring story of overcoming loss after their vocalist was murdered on stage in 2019. Until next time, keep it metal, everyone.